Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, and Chris Tilling. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sharon Ketchum, my friend and colleague here at Gordon College. Sharon is Professor of Theology and Christian Ministries. We work very closely together here at Gordon in the development of our theology program, and she's also a dear friend. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to introduce her to you, dear OnScript listeners. We'll talk ecclesiology, why teens aren't destroying the future of the church, fifth grade band concerts, and of course, her recent book, Reciprocal Church, Becoming a Community Where Faith Flourishes Beyond High School, published with IVP Praxis in 2018. I found this book enjoyable and energizing, and I'm delighted to get to talk about it today. Welcome, Sharon. Hello, Amy and OnScript (laughs) listeners. It's wonderful to be with you. (laughs) So I want to begin with giving our OnScript listeners a chance to get to know you a bit. Could you start us off today by talking about your journey to becoming a theologian? Fabulous. Um, There's maybe a couple ways to approach that. I often hear people talk about their schooling and kind of that common trajectory, but I maybe would like to talk more about that internal awakening process for me. Mm. Um, um, And maybe some people would say, too, like there was a theologian that they met or an idea that they encountered that inspired them. For me, this journey started really when I was rather young, um, and it had to do with meaning making. I remember when I was in fifth grade, um, I was in a Presbyterian church, and my family was, or I had asked and inquired if I could take the Lord's Supper. And our pastor came to our house, and he asked a very simple question, um, what does it mean, the bread and the wine? Tell me what that means. And I sat there kind of not with no answer. My older brother whispered to me, it's about the death of Jesus. (laughs) And it was this moment when the meaning of what we were doing started to take hold. Um, And I can mark lots of moments like that. I'm a synthetic thinker, so I don't um, revel in details. I like to make sense of things. And for me as a theologian, it's meant making sense of things where faith and life meet on the ground. So I worked in full-time ministry for a number of years working with young people, had the opportunity to work with enough resources and um, ideas and training that we were running a fine program. We were kind of doing what we were supposed to do at the same time, watching way before we're crying about the demise of the church. I mean, all we were hearing is the decline of the main line back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and knew that there was a problem that was more than just practical. It was theological. What's going on here that young people aren't connecting to the vibrancy of the church. So mm. then that led into my PhD studies where I got to explore that even further. Yeah. So it was an on-the-ground experience for me where faith and life meet and making meaning. When you did transition into your academic studies, how did you find that transition going from full-time ministry into... Yeah, that was a good awakening. Yeah. <laughs> it was a delightful awakening. I mean, in part, I was a very aware um, that... What I knew and what I understood had maxed out. Mm. 
Mm. So the opportunity to, number one, I uh, went to Boston College and got to swim with the Roman Catholics outside my tradition. And just the juxtaposition of what I knew and understood to be able to swim in another um, tradition's literature was deeply uh, rewarding um, right away. And so it, it was a relief to get to go and do that work just because yeah. I kind of capped out on my answers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So in your book, Reciprocal Church, I want to get into this. The examples and the jumping off point is youth ministry. But instead of limiting a conversation about ecclesiology specifically to that frame, I found this specificity actually contextualizes a larger vision of ecclesiology, asking fundamental questions of how we do church and even more to the point what church even is. You assume a larger framework than what might be expected, and you ask a key question that broadens the problem beyond the scope of youth ministry, but of course includes it. Is the church necessary? Mm. And to address this question, you lay out a paradigm for helping us process this question by asking uh, or exploring the relationship between the individual and uh, the community of faith. And you give three different sort of frames are there, uh, superfluous, supportive, or vital. You explore those in your book. So my question here to introduce your book is twofold, and we can just sort of broadly talk about it. First, talk to me about the title here. What do you mean by reciprocal as it pertains to church? And second, would you talk to us about how your book challenges our theology and our practice of church? Great questions, Amy. I'm going to tackle that second one first. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to address a predominant conception of what the church is in people's minds. Um, any contemporary book on the church and maybe sermons that people have heard talk about the myth of the church and always have to dispel these myths. Number one, the church is not um, the building, right? Mm -hmm. So church is the people. We can all do the little thing, steeple thing with our hands. I never quite figured that one out. Um, the church is not a building. The church is a people. And the second one, the church is not an institution to which we belong or to which we're loyal, but where our loyalty is Jesus Christ. So what I'm seeing and what I'm understanding in our articulation of the church today is that we actually have a new myth that is among us. Mm -hmm. And I call that the church is not the service provider. I'm not talking about worship services. I'm actually talking about service industry. The church is not the provider of what is needed for your faith. Um, the church shouldn't be limited to that, as if then the church, and if it was a service provider, then the church becomes a means to an end. Mm. And the people that I sit with on Sunday mornings um, are merely tools for my own personal discipleship or my own faith development. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of reasons that's developed, but um, this service provider myth is what I want to address. Mm. Second question, reciprocal church, then why that? Why did that become? So reciprocal church is related to a type of motion. Linear motion moves in a line. Circular motion goes in a circle. And reciprocal motion is about the push and pull, the back and forth that exists mm. between us. And thinking about that as the location of the spirit. So it's not just like you're sitting next to me in your job or the church's job is to help me grow my faith. But actually, it's our encounter with one another that provides the space for the spirit to do transforming work. I actually can't even grow in my faith without encountering you, who you are, 
and what that means. And there's lots of, you know, reasons for me to be declaring this service provider idea um, that are going on broadly in our culture, um, in our society. But at, at the core, there seems to be this loss, and and we need to retrieve an understanding of actually what, what does it mean to be a people. Mm. So that reciprocal piece, what's the push and pull between us, and how's that an opportunity for the Spirit's movement for transformation? Yeah, the section where you talk about um, faith is product. You come back to that in the service provider myth. Um, and I'm glad, really glad you named that. Uh, you come that, back to that a few times within your book because it's, um, and just show just how uh, problematic mm-hmm. it really is. So you get, we, we get this idea that, um, that faith is this neatly packaged thing that if unboxed perfectly, it will unfold into the Ikea desk (laughs) that is the Christian faith. And if anybody's put together an Ikea desk, they know that this is a myth in and of itself, right? Um, And you come back to this in your really fascinating section in which you outlined uh, the trouble with implications of our use in passing language as it relates to faith. An example being about how we talk about passing on the faith to young people in our churches. Um, And I want to just quote one thing for you uh, from this chapter. You say, the church is rich and diverse tradition, meaning the ongoing search to know and understand the movement of God is evidence that the Christian faith includes a continuing dialogue across history and cultures. Christians have always and will always seek to discern God's activity, past, present, and future. This does not mean that our discerning always hits the mark. Simply stated, Christians get things right and Christians get things wrong. Our varied history reveals this. There's no final version of the Christian faith to pass. Instead, we join with a dynamic tradition, end quote. Mm-hmm. I love this as a historical theologian, as someone who's constantly calling my students and others to listen to the great cloud of witnesses, as if they're mm-hmm. still in the room with us, because mm-hmm. in a very real ecclesiological sense, they are, mm-hmm. right? So would you explain why, uh, talk a little bit about this passing faith? Because I, I, when I got to that point, I went, ooh, like I had sort of this moment of, I think I use this sometimes. And you really made me think about it. So would you explain why this is problematic? Yeah. So first of all, we should make note that passing language is in the Pauline letters, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So Paul talks frequently about passing on the faith. Um, And as he does that, though, he's doing it for a particular reason. He's trying to mark himself in a line of authority. So if you think of the um, development of Christianity in the early churches and all the ideas of Christianity which are um, running around, so this idea of authority, and I speak from a line of authority, I don't just speak from myself, was really significant when Paul's talking about passing. Mm -hmm. But today... Passing, that passing on the faith, has a different function in our society. So words matter in, in context. And it makes me think more of walking up to Starbucks and ordering a cup of coffee. And there's particular roles, right? I'm going to order my coffee and someone's going to pass it to me. There is the person who passes on the cup of coffee and the person who receives the cup of coffee, right? If I, like, interrupt that because my coffee is so great that I've received from um, the person at Starbucks, and I kind of want to go back and say, could I take your role and provide this service to you? I'd probably get kicked out of Starbucks eventually (laughs) if I was rather persistent, right? Mm -hmm. So if we take that mentality that passing language functions in a service society, that there are those who have designated roles. I'm a passer and you're a receiver of faith. Passing on the faith actually reduces 
young people in particular to only being receivers. Mm. And add right all around that the fear that um, has taken hold in many contemporary American churches that young people aren't going to keep their faith. Right. So that, like, we're going to double down on this role. Like, we really need to secure their faith, Mm. um, which just multiplies the effects of reducing them not to being contributors to the vastness of the Christian story, which is the work of theology, right? Mm -hmm. But just to be receivers of it. Mm. So let's let's talk about that the that fear a little bit. I want to explore that. So when youth ministry with teens and college students specifically, but it has oozed down even younger too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when this comes up, there tends to be a whole lot of talk about the quote unquote nuns, not N U N S, of course, uh, N O N E S. There it is. So there are articles in the New York Times about this. There are conferences among Christian leaders that are trying to come up with all sorts of explanations and solutions. And this term has been met with everything from disdain to resignation to determination to stem this nun tide. So what do you make of all of this? What are you seeing and how are you approaching this conversation? First, let's define who the nuns actually are. That word um, was part of our, became part of our social media feeds when in, in 2014, the Pew Research came out that highlighted this new group of people or trying to or speak of how this, there was a rise among the nuns. Um, the nuns are those who, when asked, what is your religious affiliation? Check the box, none. So this mm-hmm. isn't a question just asked among Christians, although it certainly breaks out um, in a Christian response. And there is an unprecedented number of people who are willing to check the box, none. Religious affiliation, none. It's also true that there's an increased number when this um, research went out. There's an increased number of people in an age bracket between 18 and 35 that are willing to check the box, none. And when they compare this to um, longitudinal studies, what do they find? They find that there's actually significant transformation. But as soon as we say that, we have to ask, what are the, so it's just asking the question, what's your religious affiliation? None. But it's, the research isn't telling us exactly why that is. Why is there such a transformation? Does it just mean loss of faith? And when we start talking about that and having fears around it, it it ends to be a it tends to be a um, a one plus one equals two. So therefore, there's so many nuns, then people are losing faith. But it, it actually is also mixed in with it's more culturally accepted. Mm-hmm. to not have a religion. And we could put lots of different things in there as to why it is. So the nuns are a growing group. So I'm not trying to deny that the the nuns exist. I just think we need to understand them in the context of how that research is coming forward. There's also um, some, maybe a funnier designation called the duns, those who decide <laughs> they've tried this thing out and they're yeah. just done with church. Um, and in some ways, I, I think we need to pay the most attention to the spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. Um, when that term be, um started to be used, there actually was some findings um, that showed that the the group in themselves, like we developed that idea about people in their 20s and 30s, rather than there were people that were actually articulating or describing themselves. Like they weren't self-identifying that way, but we were sort of putting them in this category with words that they wouldn't necessarily use. Yes. (laughs) But I I think that's untrue now. Um, Mm. And we certainly are understanding spiritual but not religious with lots of dimensions. I'm interested in the things related to spirituality, 
but religious is related to the institution. So we're hearing that kind of anti-authority um, question of institutional trust coming alongside. So all that, like introductory, just to get to your question, says this. It has sparked a tremendous amount of fear in pastors and um, church leaders and parents um, that they find themselves paralyzed or trapped in trying to capture or secure faith in young people in such a way that um, they're um, not freeing young people to actually explore faith in similar ways. So I got to get them to like believe the right things. So let's double down on our Bible teaching. Let's double down on teaching them the right theological boxes and less time to think about how this generation might actually need to engage with the faith um, yeah. in new ways. So let's, let's sort of move back into sort of the church sphere in, in engaging with um youth ministry, but let's move into the theological section. So from our conversations and also from your book, you notice shift you've been seeing in youth ministry toward more intentionally theologically formed approaches. And I've been thinking about the conferences you've been attending and just the different conversations you've had. And also this the trajectory that this shift follows. There's often including a pendulum swing from an overemphasis on personal relationship, personal relationship, personal relationship, to an overemphasis on community, like going back and forth between these two. Would you describe this landscape for us? Yeah, first of all, um, the theolo- what we call the theological turn um, in youth ministry, which is a phrase noted by Andy Root and Kenda Dean, if those names are familiar to people. Um, it, it's an emphasis that youth ministry historically has been driven by ideas, by programs, by the plug-and-play um, without the doing the theological reflection that's necessary. Um, and that is a significant um, transformation that's going on in the field. Um, at the same time, um, that churn, because of the fear that so captures people in this conversation, mm-hmm. we want we still want quick answers. Um, and so I find a lot of dependence on social science data. Like if we could figure out what the right key is and we just kind of put that, plug that into what we're doing, then we'll have it figured out, which really resists what's actually the hard work of doing the theological reflection in the field. So when I talk to churches, I often say, like, now's our moment not to like diagnose in a sense, but to to do reflection on the church. I'd like to take this huge mirror and set it in front of a church community and say, actually, how are you talking about the church with young people? What are you communicating implicitly and implicitly about what the church is? Um, Is the church the service provider to secure the faith of young people? Does that permeate your programs and the way in your conceptions, the way you think about church? Um, Whereas, and when we do that, we're actually asking this that the question you opened with, what is the relationship between the person and the church? It's not as if our emphasis on personal discipleship is bad. It's mm-hmm. not bad. It's not bad at all. It's simply incomplete and needs to be expanded on. So I am developing, I do come to church in order for my faith to grow, but I grow in the midst of community. 
I In the book, I tell a story about my daughter. When she was four years old, we went to the beach, and she rolled in the sand. Um, she's very tactile. She rolled in the sand. She rolled in the water and played in that sun as much as we would allow her to be out there. A year later, we came back to the same beach, and she would barely put a toe in the water. She would look down into the deep and wonder what was going on in there, but she didn't really have words to tell us. Eventually, maybe halfway through the week, we'd get her out there on a a boogie board trying to prompt her in, but she was clearly fearful. Mm. So it wasn't until later that we found out between age four and age five that she had heard the word seahorse. (laughs) Seahorse. Well, let's break that word apart. A sea and a horse. And in she was making meaning out of those two words. She imagined in those deep, lurky waters that there were galloping mares, right, the size of real horses. And that, you know what, she was right to fear. So there was something right about what Annie was saying that there, when she took, was she, not what she was saying, what she was thinking with those two words from what yeah. she knew. But she had a partial understanding and it actually ended up distorting the understanding of a seahorse. Hmm. So our over overemphasis on personal discipleship is right, right? A sea and a horse. That was right. But when brought together, personal discipleship without an expanded understanding of the church and the church's role and a community of faith and our um, common and shared identity, we actually can't even be a singular Christian. So right. with, without bringing those together, I think we actually end up with a distorted view of the gospel, an individualized message of the gospel, reduced to something that's for me. Yeah, Right now, throw that in a consumer culture, throw it in a society where mm-hmm. community is voluntary. I mean, there's lots of things that then um, really end up with galloping mares in lurky, lurking in the water. So staying with this larger theme of ecclesiology, you quote Ellen Cherry from Princeton Theological Seminary on the church, quote, we don't make it, it makes us, end quote. So this provokes me to ask um, a large scope question of you as a Protestant and a scholar who teaches and writes ecclesiology and as a scholar who went to BC, right? Mm -hmm. What can we learn from Roman Catholics and from the Eastern Orthodox? What a great question. Thank you for asking that one, Amy. So I was raised Presbyterian. And I'm grateful for that tradition. Um, and I also was part of the free church, free church ecclesiology, which emphasizes um, personal encounter and personal transformation. And when we look at all this, you know, this array of Christian traditions, I think it's important for us to be able to talk about what are the real strengths that a tradition brings um, and honestly recognizing the edge of which our traditions are limited. Christian traditions grow in particular contexts and typically in response to their environments. Um, so, the fruit, for example, the free church grew in a time when um, there was accusation of ritualism, right? And so the Great Awakenings in America happened outside church walls, um, providing place or re-emphasizing the aspect of personal encounter. Um, Roman Catholicism has its own strengths that it brings. You know, you, the I remember my um, dissertation um, director. She and she was Roman Catholic. She was she had a hard time getting her head around my question for a while because from a Roman Catholic conception to ask what is the relationship between the Christian and the Church, 
that that actually is makes no sense. Right. To be Roman Catholic is to be within the church where grace flows through the sacraments. You actually can't participate in the faith without that from their ecclesiology. So there's a there is a gift to being able to understand the community that's natural in Roman Catholicism that is not natural mm-hmm. within any type of free church ecclesiology. Yeah. And then turn to and looking generously again at Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, so imagine an experience of growing up in the faith where the saints are always part of that community. They're visually part of your worship experiences. Um, they mark the calendar and the seasons of the year. So you never, there's no conception that you're alone in the faith. You're always, now we're breaking down walls, the kind of thick walls that are more part of the Western church between um, this life and the life to come. But you're always part of this community larger than yourself. And we need to hear that in the free church tradition. We need to hear that. We've, we want to you know, do these, we, uh, the overemphasis on personal transformation, which is a gift. That's the gift out of that tradition. But the overemphasis can reduce the faith to personal encounter. Boy, we need those other traditions. When I, um, after I defended on my dissertation, um, Tom Groom, who was part of our program, he looked at me and he said, um, you know what, Sharon? And he had a, a rich Irish brood. He said, <laughs> you have, we have reminded you of the significance of the church. And you have reminded us of the importance of personal encounter. And that's that kind of synergy and ecclesiology that I can see in some of the work in the field that is going to be of great benefit. Mm. And I guess maybe one more thought. I guess I really appreciate it because it's generous, right? And it's honest. So I can say where are the problems in my tradition and yet lean in without um, just taking little um, little pieces from traditions. But I can kind of lean in and develop that. theological understanding within the tradition, which is exactly what this project tries to do, to speak within the free church. Right. So switching gears just a little bit, I have a significant interest in theological anthropology, an interest I know you share. Um, So would you explain this link you make between how we view our bodies and how we understand church? I'd love to see this fleshed out <laughs> yeah well you come here done. for the jokes on script listeners oh, that's hysterical <laughs> <clears throat> uh, i write in the book about megan trainer pop star who had a set of videos produced about her that were cropped to change her body size and when she saw it she looked at them and say said that is not me Mm. And it's, she actually was making this really profound theological statement that didn't separate what she looked like apart from who she was. Um, I, I find that rather intriguing for us to think about. Christianity fights against dualist thinking. Still. Yeah. Always. You know, the scriptures are full of, in the New Testament, they're full of words that have to be parsed out. What does flesh mean? What does spirit mean? Parsed out to avoid dualist thinking, to not think of ourselves as a composite with this non-material soul and material flesh. And and we have part, part of our tradition is taking on this idea of the flesh as what has to be somehow undone and true spirituality is always inward churning. We hear even hear that in Augustine. It's inward churning and inward reflection. 
Um, so in the end, if you think that the the primary part of, of Christianity and Christian spirituality is to transform inwardly, you, Amy, are always going to be secondary. Yeah. Your body's always going to be secondary. Caring about racial healing is always going to be secondary. Mass migration will be secondary. The person sitting next to me in a worship service, will, worship service is secondary to my inward turn. Wow. So how, wow. what does this have to do? We are embodied people. We are embodied. And what does that mean as we encounter one another? That my transformation isn't left alone to me, but it actually I am being wired with you for all of eternity. Mm-hmm. Not in a way that we kind of dissolve as individuals into a big mass, but that my will hits up against yours. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, in Sanctorium Communio talks about um, and defines ontologically the human person as related to what's distinct about us. What defines us is our will. Mm. So what defines me against you is that our wills differ. They hit up against one another. Same with God. What's distinct of God? The truly other is the will that is not me. And that that doesn't disappear eschatologically. Right. But that our wills and our work now, as he says, in in movement towards um, ultimately what will be, is how do we deal with our differing wills? Right. But if you're not enfleshed and your spirituality doesn't, that body isn't just some, if it's, it, it, I'm sorry, let me say that again. If it's not, if your outward body is like a bodysuit that you zip on, right, then I'm actually not going to care about you. Right. And about bodies of the world. So, oh, yeah, you got me. That is, <laughs> bring it. We've got some work to do. This has implications all over the place. This one idea, what what's the relationship between you and me and me and the church? When I think about this um, as it relates to Christology, um, because who we think Christ is, um, and I always ask the question in my class, you know, what is Jesus now? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because I've noticed uh, – there's not very much sort of ascension theology mm-hmm. that I've noticed mm-hmm. among my Protestant students. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be fair, I didn't really have much of that either. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something I later came to. But And they sort of look at me funny. Like, what do you mean, what he is he? I'm saying, is, is he still human? Is he still fully human? Um, and they sort of, I, I just watch like the wheels turn as they're thinking about this. Um, and And then I sort of make a joke about, well, do you think, Jesus ascended and then, you know, unzipped his human suit like a bad pair of spanks and was like, oh, I'm so glad to be out of that. <laughs> Woo, freedom. <laughs> and and they all chuckle um, and realize how they were basically um, eradicating the humanness of Jesus going oh, yeah. forward. Because in their minds, it's not possible to be human wherever Christ is. Yeah. And and to be embodied. Um and if he's our brother and co-heir, um, and he's the firstborn of this new creation, <laughs> we are actually the poverty of our own theological anthropology, eschatologically, as a community and as individuals, is amen terrible. <laughs> yeah, you're. Yes, that's it. One of my favorite pieces that we read um, in our theology course is by Roman Catholic theologian Elizabeth Johnson, mm-hmm. where she talks about um, Jesus as human flourishing, 
Mm. So when the divine reaches, drawing on Augustine, but the divine reaches out, always yearning um, with the human who is always searching for the divine. And when the two come together is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that is human flourishing. And I watch that too with our students. And and they it's, it's at the point where they have to recognize that taking on the body that Jesus took on is a recognition of the goodness of God's creation, a goodness of this material world that is so much a part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Yeah. And it's about flourishing. It's about flourishing at that point. Yeah. And I, and I just think you mentioned mass migration and racial hearing, yep. healing. And I just think about how, um, if our, if our anthrop, if we don't think about our anthropology, if we don't think about, um, who Christ is now, if we don't think about the person sitting next to us in the pew, um, just how much it completely distorts the gospel. Uh-huh. And, and if we don't think about our ecclesiology. Yeah. Right? So if we don't think that in the end, God is forming a people, a people, a body, a building, a temple of the Holy Spirit, that that's where God's work is right now among us. If that's always secondary, all our work in racial reconciliation and racial healing will always sit on the margins itself, that work will. Because what really matters is the inward churn in my spiritual development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the piece that I think I think is the hinge to unlocking our, our um, actual attention and prioritization of what it means to do with the bodies around us. We see this with gender as well. Yes, we do. You know, um, what we think about our own bodies, what we think about the bodies of others. Um, and and a lot of, some of that is subterranean. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that is learned. Some of mm-hmm. that is, mm-hmm. uh, the, a lot of it is, is subconscious in mm-hmm. some ways where uh, we come to the table with this operational theology, which you don't even realize that yeah. we already have software that we have in our brains of how we process what it means to be the church, what it means to be human, who God is, what salvation is, that we come to this. Um, and especially I'm thinking in the context of youth ministry, how, you know, what these students are bringing to the t- like bringing in with them, right? And how they're processing through and they're making these they're trying to understand as their own development, as they're individuating and their understanding, starting to see around them difference, starting to understand um, that their will, to use the term you used earlier, is maybe divergent from their parents' will or from their friends' will. And then they see, you know, the dangers in this, the freedom in this. Um, and I'm thinking you – I want to – bring us back to you you've mentioned the work of the spirit a few times and and this is a link that you make a, a lot throughout your book about sort of using theological terms here right ecclesiology and uh, pneumatology and so what is it when we talk about the holy spirit a lot um can you sort of demystify <laughs> what 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 we mean when we talk about the work of the spirit and yep. when we talk about internal work, but also this building of community. Yep. The spirit, yeah. Ugh, this is fun stuff. And again, I feel like I'm dabbling outside of my tradition and getting to draw upon 
um, theologians that are doing such important work in this area right now from the Pentecostal tradition. So maybe we could think through like Moses. When Moses is up on the mountain and the calf is being made and it gets the words the calf is being made, can you, you know, we can imagine all the emotions, emotions that he has. He's running down and drops the tablets and all that happens. And then we have this moment, um, I think in Exodus 33, where he's praying to God and he's asking specifically that God will not remove his presence. Hmm. Um, Walter Brueggemann writes about the real story of Exodus is for a people to figure out how they might host God's presence. I love how he says that. You know, so we can mark that from the tabernacle. How they learned how to host God's presence, how God would be with them. You see it in the temple. Then Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, here with us, God's presence among us. And then the spirit poured out on the church, God's presence with a people. God's presence dwells among us. So the temple of the Holy Spirit maybe is the best metaphor to explain that through. We love to talk about the temple of the Holy Spirit related to our body. Um, there is only one Especially use. if it involves tattoos. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and weights and, yeah. <laughs> and lifting weights. <laughs> but there's actually only one use in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 6 where that's related to our, our individual body. And even in that passage, there's communal understandings. The temple of the Holy Spirit is a description of God's presence among God's people. Yeah. God's presence with us. So if we think through like Galatians chapter 5 and what the Spirit is producing, the Spirit is producing what nurtures, the, the fruit that nurtures community. What is the flesh producing? It is what is disruptive to community. This is everywhere in the, in the New Testament calling out to us. What is the Spirit works for the purposes of God. Spirit does not work against God. It is within the very movement of God's self, right? So... The Spirit is moving to form a people. That's the track all the way from the covenants that moving forward. God is raising a people that will dwell in a city where God's throne, Revelation 21, comes down to be with God's people, right? No return to the garden, but in the city, in the complexity of a bunch of differing wills mm -hmm. where there will be peace. Mm -hmm. What is the Spirit doing? Far more than we can do ourselves. Right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer again, um, speaks of Christ who doesn't die once and for all, but comes again, comes daily to renew and to redeem. So like the church is dependent upon the power of the spirit who's doing God's purposes, which is to transform us with one another. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. It's very cool. Right? It's very cool. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Yeah, we can do more. <laughs> Pannenberg and the ecstatic work of the spirit that raises us out of who we are. Always for more, for the purposes of God. Yeah. That's I'm going to awesome. do some ecclesiology through the Spirit. I'm in. Awesome. All right. Speed round time. Here we go. Okay, I'm a little nervous so quick, about speed round. So we're talking off the cuff, just a few seconds per okay. answer. I know I know okay. you like to be prepared. I do like But to you prepared. are not prepared for I'm this. Prepared. Here we go. Okay. What is your comfort movie? Oh, Sound of Music. Ha, nice. What is the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? One? Yep, just pick one. Moltmann, Crucified God. You don't need Wolf, to explain, Guy. Sorry, Exclusion, Embrace. 
You only get two. I'll let Sask you have the two. Sask is very small, <laughs> the kindness of God. Anything by Coakley. I'm done. <laughs> that was fun. Do you think humans should colonize Mars? Why or why not? <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So should humans colonize Mars? Um, we should redeem our track record and stop all colonizing ever again. Boom. <laughs> what Disney princess are you? I have no idea. No My idea. kids are skittish. And so I actually don't pay much attention <gasps> to Disney movies. No. I know. All right. That's sad. Yeah. Um, that was so let me, let me ask you one that I think you might be able, able to answer. If you could compete... As a professional athlete for a day, who would it be? Oh, I would absolutely be a gymnast. Yeah, Simone Biles. Yes, <laughs> right there. <laughs> absolutely. Such the feeling respect. of doing... Such respect for the character and the power and the strength. Flying through the air. Flying through the air. It's more the power, like the strength That's awesome. that it takes to do that. Mm. If you got to hang out with any theologian living or dead, who would it be and why? Mm. I would probably want to hang out with Julianne of Norwich. Mm-hmm. I bet she'd be a good time, <laughs> right? <laughs> or or a not good time. I can't really quite decide which of those things I she'd be. I could be a fly on the wall. I just would like to encounter, right? Yeah, I specifically left world. it like hang out with. So I was thinking oh. you'd probably want to have, you know, like you could do a beer with Luther. Oh, but fun. you wouldn't want to really like have hang coffee. Out with, I don't yeah. want to hang out with Luther, really. Not <laughs> because fair. I don't like Luther, but <laughs> a little... Tight. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes well, and some th some theologians, I feel like you'd have coffee with, and other ones you'd want to go to like like an art show with, or other ones you'd want to, you know so what fun. I mean? <laughs> Julian of Norwich, you'd probably just want to like hang out and like a. I want to a, observe. Yeah, like maybe a poetry slam or yeah, something. Right? <laughs> You're so fun. Do you have any unusual phobias? Unusual? I, I I'm not sure it's unusual. I cannot put on a snorkeling mask. Because I feel claustrophobic. It is desperately sad. Oh, Isn't that sad? That is sad. I the know. underwater world is beautiful. It. I know. Tell me about it. I would like to experience it. I like the adventure. Mm. Okay, that was just a sad one, not weird. <laughs> How pathetic. <laughs> That's okay. What's one idea in theology you think needs to die? Oh, that's a great question. I think that the idea, I'm going to steal it, actually, it's so profound, that God is apart from us hmm. versus living among us, and that's Moltmann, mm -hmm. um, an idea of a God that is stagnant um, in a way. Yeah, Moltmann challenges that idea. Oh, I just want to be clear. Oh, that, sorry. Yeah, yes. he, he's not, he, his idea so is not the one you. you want to chuck. Sorry. It's the one you... Yes. <laughs> no, it's the living God. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a couple more questions for you. Oh, are we so, done with the speed challenge? Yes, that's okay, a speed I only run. have to pass a little. Yeah. No, okay, you did great. You did great. So not all theological, theological books are self-consciously examples of practical theology for the church. So this one is... Mm. So what, um, what have been some of the responses you've received from churches? Uh, what are you seeing among other practical theologians and pastors? Yeah, so first of all, I chose to write this book with um, specifically with IVP Praxis instead of doing academic. Um, so I had to make that choice along the way. Um, and I did it on purpose because I wanted to write for the people. So 
one thing is I hear that it's um, it's I'm I'm aware that it's still theological and needs to be walked through to be understood in groups of people. So I encourage it to be read that way. When well, you have discussion questions, yep, at I the do. End. And mm-hmm. I actually even have more stuff on ways in which people can think because um, we're not as trained to think theologically right. all the time. So that's one thing that I am discovering. Um, I'm, I find that people don't disagree. What mm. is there? I'm doing, I'm retrieving, right, an idea of what the church is. So it's vaguely familiar. And when they hear it and when they see some of the images that help make some of this material come alive, that people do not disagree. I am very aware that what I'm asking for is epistemological, which is how I defi- define conversion. Mm. I am asking for there to be a transformation in the way we see, the way we see the biblical text, the way we see other people, the way we see the church, which has pretty strong impact on our daily lives and certainly has an impact on um, sometimes the machine of church that needs to be fed just to keep going. Um, so I, so it's I'm asking something big that um, likely is going to take some time to continue to say and probably for people to actually have experiences because conversion comes from encounter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you speak so beautifully about hope for who we can be as the church. Um, and I don't think I'll spoil this book if I'm going to have you read the epilogue here. Um, and I'm going to combine this question of, of I'm going to ask you about hope. What do you hope to convey to the church and to academia about young people, where do you see hope? So I'll have you read and then maybe comment on that. All right. Have you been to a fifth grade band concert? Let's be honest, there's a reason tickets aren't sold on StubHub. Listening to songs played by 50 kids who are simultaneously learning to read music and play an instrument is undeniably an act of love. As I look around the room that night, it fills with a predictable crowd. Tired parents, faithful grandparents, brothers and sisters too young to be left home alone, and of course the principal. I suspect many of the families represented in this room share our story. Every kid loves getting the shiny new instrument and plays it endlessly the first week. Then the practice regimen begins. Our son plays percussion. Even with the array of noise-making pieces from a drum pad to triangle to chimes to chimes, Practicing immediately became a battle in our house. We bribe, he squawks. We plead, he cries. We threaten, he protests. And what's the reward? Spending an hour at a free fifth grade band concert. The conductor sports a slightly oversized suit and raises his baton, signaling to the squirming musicians to stop waving excitedly excitedly at their parents. The song on the program is Wooly Bully a 1965 rock and roll hit by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, a classic in American pop culture. My expectations, which are low, are met by the second measure. We hear a pronounced squeak from a clarinet, followed by an out-of-tune trombone played by a kid whose cheeks resemble a pufferfish. The conductor's baton makes exaggerated motions trying to keep everyone, especially the percussionists, on beat. Trumpets are blasting, sheet music is flying, flautists are awkwardly tilting their heads, and a small girl in the back row is balancing a disproportionately sized tuba compared to the size of her body. A cacophonous of sound fills the room, and suddenly we hear it. 
At least I think we do. Is it? Yes, we hear it. It's undeniable. The familiar chorus of Wooly Bully reverberates in our ears. It goes as quickly as it comes, but nonetheless, two parents displaying the scars it took to arrive at this moment now have tears running down their faces. Overwhelmed with pride, the kind only a parent can feel, we hold on to the armrest to keep from standing up and shouting, Did you hear it? They're playing Wooly Bully. Our son is playing Wooly Bully. Might this be how our heavenly parent feels when we, the church, just for a moment, figure out how to play a melodious sound together? Isn't this especially true if our heavenly parent has with us during the difficulty, difficult journey it took to get us here, bearing the scars necessary to overcome our differing, dividing wills? Christ rejoices over his people. The Spirit testifies to, to the glory of God when, even just for a moment, we put our gifts together and produce a sound that serves as an authentic sign of God's redeeming love among us. Yes, sometimes it's gone as quickly as it arrives, but the sound is so sweet, it's undeniable to all who hear. I now regularly enjoy high school band concerts, and guess what? With lots of practice, that fifth grade band got better, and so can we. Thank you. It's so wonderful. So hope. Talk to me about hope. John 17 is Jesus' prayer. And it's really an evangelistic prayer that God's love will be known because we figure out how to be one. The hope is that the world will see a people that are being transformed. My goodness, not perfect, right? Wooly bully for a second mm-hmm. when we're doing it right. When we're leaning into the spirits transforming, that is our hope. Experience is the test of what is true for rising generations. Experience is the test of what is true. And if they show up at our churches and they don't see a people who are leaning into the power and emphasizing the transforming work of the Spirit among us, will they stay? They will not. So our hope is that we refocus on what it means to become God's people, and that becomes core to our understanding of the church. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. (laughs) What a delight it was to talk with you, Sharon. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Amy. It is wonderful to be with you. This is your host, Amy Hughes with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Sharon Ketchum, professor of theology and Christian ministries at Gordon College. Sharon has written Reciprocal Church, Becoming a Community Where Faith Flourishes Beyond High School. You can find a link to her book, on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate. 